Hello and welcome to the Samungos podcast. This is episode 35 and this is part two of gender-based violence and human trafficking. So when we left it last time, our patient had just disclosed that they were experiencing gender-based violence. So let's just jump right back in. Um, okay, well, look, let's talk about some of our options in terms of the support that we can offer. How would you suggest I approach this patient? Well, the first thing is to determine with the person what level of risk that they feel that they are experiencing. If the risk is deemed to be very high, then the key option for you is to contact the police. And that's best done with their consent. And they may be very happy for that to happen. If um, the risk is something that they feel they can manage for the time being, but they do want to have some support if they need it in the future then you have to find a way in discussion with them of providing that information in the most discreet way possible um, and that could be through the likes of using lipsals or putting the information in a, a, a headed letter that is perhaps under the context of cover of something else um, you could also suggest that the person discloses and talks to their GP about the issue or at any other future health appointment that they have because you can reassure them that most health staff have been trained on the issue and health services understand and want to support people who are in these circumstances. And I think it would be good practice for a department such as an A&E department to have lots of these resources already available so it's not like we're having to go search for them. Um, it yeah. would be good to have a little pack available with the, the appropriate numbers and website addresses and then just how to deliver that to the patient. Some of the, we the websites may be memorable websites that they can take away. Um, I, I just going back to the lip cells as well, just in case yeah. the listener didn't wasn't sure what that was. I, I think it's we have that in our department. They're yeah. like little lipsticks. Yeah. Um, but they have like a barcode on them. That's and, it. Yeah. And, and the telephone number is within the barcode, so it's not obviously yes. at, on first impressions the number of a, of a, a yes. crisis. That's um, right. It's kind of hidden in a way, isn't it? Yeah. Um, just going back to the the GP. Um, what are what. Do we, ha do we have to ask permission to disclose to the GP or do you think it's fair to say to the patient, look, this is standard practice, we need to pass on this information and, and even if, I guess one solution is we, we, we relay that information to the GP and then get them to make an appointment under the maybe the pretext of something different but it's an opportunity for them to carry on that discussion with their GP, is that, is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the GP is... You know what a key port of call for anyone um, who's experiencing abuse, and I don't. Um, you don't have to ask their permission to put it in the GP letter. You don't have their. You don't seek permission to put other health information in the GP letter. So there's no reason that that should um, shouldn't be the same. But it's good practice. To, you could let the person know that you're putting it in the GP letter, and there's still the balls in their court to to visit the GP and to, to raise it with the GP. And I think we, we didn't mention it specifically, but I guess one important thing is to give the patient, would it be fair to say, quite a bit of reassurance? Um, and what I mean by that is I know one case that I dealt with, 
the, the patient just wasn't aware of what was available to them. And mm. just knowing me being able to relay that there is lots of support out there, mm-hmm. it's about accessing it might be an issue, but there is a lot of support. We're here to help you. That that in itself seemed very reassuring for the patient. Is that is that Well, absolutely. And I guess part of that too is reassuring them about health service responses and that we so that it's not accept this behavior isn't acceptable and the health services understand that and health workers understand that as well as the other support services that do exist out there okay so say we determined that the risk was very high um and you mentioned contacting the police i, I take it is that something that we need to gain permission from the patient for or how do we approach that? Because I guess there are some situations where we could maybe inflame the the problem. Would that be fair if we don't do it sensitively? Or, or what would you what would you say to that? Yeah, I th- I think again it's back to the the risk assessment. If you feel and the person feels they're at risk of immediate harm, um, then you may feel that that's you need to call the police um, because their life may be on the line, literally. Um, Other options, if they feel they can manage that risk, are um, putting them in touch with the likes of Women's Aid. I mean, it depends on time of day that they present, but there is out of our social work or there is Women's Aid helplines available. And you can actually um, support the person to make that phone call themselves while you're there or make it on their behalf and pass the phone to them. So there's things where you can handhold to a degree to help them to access the support that they they need and find out what their options are immediately. Yeah, we didn't really talk about that much, but that, that's a good point, actually. Mm. We can do a lot in the moment. If the partner yeah. is out of earshot, back yeah. in the waiting room, we could instigate a lot of that service in the room in the yeah. moment and, and provide the numbers, make the phone calls um, in that moment, yeah. And it might be too that if the person has made that contact with you there in support, even if it doesn't follow through that that particular time, she might then feel able to contact the organisation again in the future because she's Can- made the first step. Do you mind if I just ask, just out of my own ignorance on on, on the matter of refuges, um, so there are places where they will look after and keep people protected and safe from from uh, potential perpetrators. How do they generally work? What should I know to be able to, to convey to them? Um, and, and how do they operate? Do, do they come immediately or do they? does the patient have to go to that refuge? Or how, how does that particularly work? Well, what would happen, it depends on what time of day, but if it was between, say, the hours of nine and five, then... You could contact the women's aid on behalf of the person. She would, the woman would speak to a worker there, and arrangement would be made for the woman to get to the women's aid office, and um, probably by taxi. Um, I whether women's aid would pay for that or health services would pay for that. I'm not 100 percent sure right now. Um, the woman would go to the women's aid office and she would meet with a worker and then have a, a whole. Um, conversation discussion with the worker about what all her options are and and also um, the worker would then f- try and find her a place of safety if there wasn't a place in a refuge in glasgow they would likely be in another uh, town or city as near to glasgow as possible 
until one a space came up in Glasgow. Um, alternative to that would be going to homelessness accommodation, city council, and getting emergency temporary accommodation, which some women prefer to being placed in a refuge. So these are options for 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 women. And I guess we should mention at this stage um, that we have a lot of listeners from all over the country Mm. and even from different countries. So it's all about just finding out what is locally available to you. We're obviously talking about what's available in Glasgow, but do a bit of research, find out your options locally and then use those. Okay, I'm presuming some of these situations are obviously, well, probably all of them are very distressing. If the patient is very, very distressed, even on the point of kind of psychiatric, even a bit of disturbance, is it ever appropriate to involve psychiatric services in these moments? Well, of course, yeah. If the person is is in that state and you feel that they would benefit from getting support from mental health services, then... Absolutely, you would you would contact your emergency um, mental health services or make find a way of making a referral to the crisis team. Um, would it be fair to say that this? I mean, we've talked a lot about man versus the woman, yeah, yeah, and yeah. that's probably, I'm sure, the most common uh, presentation. But I presume this can also happen in different types of relationships and to men as well. Is that right? Yeah, so men may, yeah, in some circumstances, men are also abused by their partners, and that might be either in men who are in same sex relationships or in heterosexual relationships. Um, again, there are some services for men, and the best way to access those is through the domestic abuse or rape crisis national helplines, and they would put you in touch with the right service. So let's talk about human trafficking, if you don't mind. Now, I think a lot of what we've already said still applies. It's about being suspicious and sensitively inquiring and knowing what your resources are and how to deliver those. But there are a few little things that we want to, to consider. Um, do you mind just talking a little bit about that? Let, let, let's start with what forms that human trafficking can present. Well, people are... Uh, trafficked generally for three main purposes. It might be for commercial sexual exploitation uh, or domestic exploitation or labour exploitation. So it may well be women, men and children who are uh, trafficked for any of these purposes. And in some circumstances, someone who, for example, is being trafficked for domestic exploitation may also be experiencing sexual abuse and likewise in labour exploitation. So, um, And how should we identify these people? I, I, I'm presuming it's maybe someone, maybe not from our country, and maybe doesn't speak the language very well and doesn't seem to be with people who maybe speak the same language or family mm. members. or are, are those the, the typical trigger points or are there anything else we should be clued up on in terms of identifying these people? Well, there's both in terms of how people behave when they're presented, similarly with domestic abuse. It might be the behaviour of the trafficker that you're looking at as well as the victim. Um, they may not come be someone from the local population, but at the same time, people are also trafficked internally within the UK. Um, it may be someone who doesn't have access um, to their passport or any written information. Or they may not be registered yeah. with a GP. Yeah, might not have any documentation. Um, and they may 
I suppose the primary thing is they may appear quite frightened and evasive. And often you'll get the other person speaking on their behalf and trying to close down any of any kind of interaction between the health worker and the person. And you mentioned as well, if they are the interpreter for that patient, probably best to remove them and get a formal yeah. interpreter. Well, in any circumstance, um, health service staff should never use you should never use a family member um, or friend as an interpreter, and that's across the board. So, um, even more so in in these circumstances. So, a lot of similarities, obviously. But what what are the big differences now when this is a human trafficking case? What what are the different things to think about? Well, it's important to remember that if someone comes f- from out with the UK, that they are still entitled to health services as any other. Um, citizen within the UK. Um, So they're entitled to emergency care, but they're also entitled to ongoing acute service care. Um, And that is different from in England and Wales, and that pertains to people in Scotland. Um, The other key thing to know and to reassure the person about is if they, for example, disclose that they've been trafficked, and if that is then they they seek support services. They are entitled to 90 days where they can both have their case investigated but get access to psychological support, accommodation, practical um, support in terms of uh, food and shelter and uh, all, all those kind of things that allow them to kind of stay in the country until such time as, as their case is assessed. Um there are human trafficking, um, if you like, services. There's migrant help and Tara within who provide services in Scotland to victims of human trafficking. And um, they, there are also special arrangements in place for uh, young people under the age of 18 who have been trafficked. And the other important thing to remember is if you're a health worker that if you think or someone tells you that they're under 18, then you go on the assumption that they are and there are child protection procedures that must be followed in that case. So just in summary, I guess, similar to before, we should be aware of what resources are available um, and sensitively try to deliver that information uh, to to the patient and maybe even have the opportunity in the cubicle if if their colleagues or perpetrators are absent at that moment that's an opportunity to involve services but let's say we were highly highly suspicious but the patient refused to disclose maybe they were in in fear of their perpetrator or what repercussions mm. there would be for family back home or whatever if we were highly highly suspicious but they weren't prepared to dis- to disclose what what can we do is there anything we can do in those moments if if that's the scenario you're faced with the best thing to do is to let the person still know about what their options are and what resources and supports are available there and what their entitlements are too because that's a key thing because they will have been told all sorts of lies by the traffickers about what will happen to them if they tell so they're reinforce they're entitled to this 90-day period of reflection. That's really um, important. They're entitled to accommodation. They're entitled to um, enough money to keep keep them in food. And, and they're also entitled to psychological mental health support for, um, for this 90-day period. 
Um, at the end of that period, um, there will be a decision taken about whether they will have the right to remain in the country pending further investigation into their, their claim or whether they wish to return to their country of origin and they would be obviously supported to return to the country of origin if that's what they decided to do. And this is specifically now for Scotland, but there's been a recent change in, in some of the legislation with regards if if illegal trafficked people are involved in crime. What, what, what was that uh, change that came in recently? Well, the recent change is that uh, if people have been forced into any kind of slavery that involves them in, in criminal acts, then they will not be prosecuted in this country for those acts. That's because they're considered not really free agents. They're not really... Yeah, because the whole context in which they were forced to carry out those acts is um, taken into account. Kath, thank you very, very much for your time. I was just wondering, just before we go, is there any kind of little summary, takeaway message you'd like to leave our listeners? Yes, I think it's important that health workers all remember that contact with health worker might be the one chance for a person to get help and protection um, and to look out for signs of gender-based violence and human trafficking and know how to respond when you see those signs. And I think we all know how to do that now, so thank you very much for your time. So thank you very, very much for listening to this podcast. I think my main take-home points today from this episode are number one, to help people who have suffered gender-based violence firstly determine the level of risk and involve the police if this is high. Then you need to find ways to provide support details and often in a discreet way. And this can be hidden on lip salves or it can be hidden within headed letters or you could refer back to the GP but make it clear in your letter what the purpose of that follow-up is. Now you need to reassure the patient that there is lots of help available and some of that includes Women's Aid which is a national UK helpline but also local out of hours social work can also be very supportive. Now if you can get the patient alone they could make the first call in the department. There are refuges available. This can often be organised again through Women's Aid. And another option is homeless services locally may be able to provide temporary accommodation. And for men, there are other helplines such as Domestic Abuse Helpline or Rape Crisis Helpline. And those numbers are available in our show notes. In terms of human trafficking, people can be trafficked because of sexual, domestic or labour exploitation. Now, typically they are not native to the country and they don't often speak good English, but people can be trafficked even within the UK. They may lack documentation, they may appear frightened or evasive, and they may often have a person with them who speaks on their behalf, but remember to try and use interpreters at all times. So useful information to know for people who have been trafficked, they are entitled to healthcare like all UK citizens, and they will enter a 90-day period in Scotland to have their case investigated. And during that time, they will receive psychological support if they need it, but also food and shelter. And at the end of that period of time, a decision will be made on their right to remain, and they will be supported to return home if that is the final decision. So if you are highly suspicious, but the patient refuses to disclose that they've been trafficked, still provide this information because it is extremely helpful for them to know that there is support available and they will have been told lies from their captors. There will be local services available but one UK national helpline is Migrant Help and again the information on that is in our show notes. And in Scotland 
It's recently been legislated that if they have been forced into criminal acts during their trafficking, then they will not be prosecuted for those crimes. And one final thing that Kath emphasised at the end of the podcast was healthcare workers may get one chance to offer help and protection to these vulnerable people. So you need to look for the signs and you need to know how to respond. And I'll just emphasise one last time that this podcast was based on Scottish practice and Scottish law. So please just check locally how this differs in your area. So many, many thanks again to Kath. Many, many thanks to you for listening. Please check out our show notes where we have all the links that we've mentioned in this podcast and also lots more educational resources for your enjoyment. Until next time, take care.